Welcome to Hack Stack Level 4, the final level. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to explore and, yes, find the meaning of life. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first three levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Well, hello, everyone. How have you guys been? Man, it just seems like it's been a really long time since I have posted a podcast. And then I uh, checked my calendar, and sure enough, it's it's been a while. Uh, it's been over a month, and I I apologize for that. I, <laughs> I got kind of busy with summer and, and hanging out with the family and kids. I guess I shouldn't apologize for that, right? That's, what's, uh, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what's uh, some of the important things in life. Uh, so... I was doing that, and uh, the whole time, though, in the back of my head, uh, this idea for uh, the Meaning of Life podcast has been kind of bouncing around in my old noodle, and I'm excited to play uh, that episode for you. Uh, It's just not this episode, (laughs) so I am probably one or two days away from posting that episode and uh, really excited about that one. But I got to thinking, in the meantime, I can play uh, one of the most influential lectures that I have ever heard in my life. It just totally changed the way I think about things. It also changed the way I communicate with people because I wanted to mimic how this guy communicated because he was so skillful. And since this ties in so much with the bigger questions of life, the meaning of life, uh, does God exist, things like that, I figured I would play it for you guys. Now, if you've listened to Hack Stack all the way through, and in particular, if you've listened to the extra credits uh, at the end of the episodes that happen occasionally, you have actually already heard this. Uh, I'm about to play for you the Berkeley Lecture. Now, the Berkeley Lectures are two lectures given over two days by a man by the name of Greg Kokel. I've mentioned him numerous times on this show. He is a theist, right? He believes that God exists, and he communicates in such a confident way. I wanted to post it again because I think last time it was on the extra credit of one of the episodes on productivity, maybe episode number 10, And that's a little bit out of place. I think it fits better right here, right smack dab in the middle of level four. It's a little bit more appropriate. And I'm not going to give a a whole lot of intro uh, into this clip. I mean, it's it's a long clip. It's it's two lectures that were held over two days. And there was a a question and answer session at the end of each lecture. Uh, I think I only have the first Q&A session uh, for you to listen to, but you'll uh, you'll get the point. Uh, suffice it to say, it's a very fascinating uh, dialogue between people, and the lectures I think will really make you uh, will really make you think about some of these bigger questions, and that's why I wanted to sort of repost this uh, right here in level four. It also makes it a little easier to find if you if you want to you know share share this episode with some friends as I think it'd be a good thing to have uh, people of different ideologies and beliefs listen to and then get together and discuss afterwards. Uh, I've done that numerous times in my life 
and uh, it's it's always a, a fun thing. Um, but you guys know me, you know. I think you can disagree with people and, and still get along, and I think you're even better for it for uh, going down that path. But uh, without further ado, I am going to play the Berkeley lectures for you. I'm just going to play them straight through, and then you'll hear the Hackstack uh, closing music, and that'll be it for this show. Um, but hopefully this makes you think, and check back in, hopefully... Within a few days, and I will post that Meaning of Life episode, uh, and I am very much looking forward to that. All right, take care. Here you go. It's my privilege to introduce uh, Mr. Kokel tonight, and um, I just want to sort of give a little bit of a background. I'm sure a lot of you have uh, already heard much about him, but I wanted to uh, share with you a little bit of the background before um, having him come up here. Uh, he has joked uh, on occasion that he started out thinking he was too smart to become a Christian and ended up giving his life for the defense of the Christian faith. So um, he became a Christian in 1973, and Greg has worked with Cambodian refugees in Thailand, uh, college students in India, and Christians in five communist countries, including the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, a central theme of his speaking and writing is that Christianity can compete in the marketplace of ideas when it's properly understood and properly articulated. And he's emphasized down-to-earth Christian living, and our speaker has had many opportunities to argue in the public arena for the credibility of the Christian faith. Uh, through debates and lectures, he has spoken at over 30 universities, though this is his first trip to the University of California at Berkeley. All right. So again, we're very excited to have him here on our campus, and uh, he has been featured on James Dobson's Focus on the Family radio broadcast. He's been quoted in the LA Times, the US News and World Report. He's an award-winning writer, and he is co-author of Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, which is the topic of our um, talk tonight. And this is uh, his book. I have the privilege to hold it here. <laughs> And it will be actually available after this talk uh, uh, at a table. Um, also, he's the founder and president of Stand to Reason and hosts a weekly live radio talk show advocating clear-thinking Christianity and defending the Christian worldview. So without further ado, it is my privilege, and I hope you can give, join me in uh, offering him a warm welcome to Mr. Greg Kokel. Thank you. I, I, am, I am honestly very touched by your warmth. Uh, I'm quite stunned, actually. I, I'm getting used to, uh, to Berkeley, though. It's a little bit difficult whenever I go out of town because I'm from this Southern California, Los Angeles in particular. And uh, so we got some L.A. Angelinos, right? You know, I, I noticed a little smog over here, and I think these Angelinos just flew up here and exhaled. Um, I actually have a hard time. I come to a place like this, and the air is so, um, what's the word? Clean, you know? I'm like Woody Allen. I don't trust air I can't see, you know? So uh, 
takes me a little while to get used to it, and usually what I have to do is I wait till the cars are stopped at the stoplight, and I run around behind the back of one, and I clamp my lips around the uh, <laughs> exhaust pipe, take a few deep breaths, and there's no longer any hydrocarbon withdrawals, you know. <laughs> Actually, this is my first time um, in this capacity at the University of California, Berkeley, though I was on campus 32 years ago. And the last time I was here is because I lived in the community. I lived just right down the street in Albany. Uh, my life was quite a bit different then. And, uh, and Berkeley, I think, was quite a bit different. I don't know if you all are aware of the heritage that you have. I'm sure some of you do uh, know of the heritage. But the Berkeley that I knew had started a revolution in thinking in this country. And the students there were willing to ask the tough questions. The students were willing to challenge the status quo. They were unwilling to go along with the crowd. They were unwilling to accept convention for the sake of conventions, for the sake of convention. And in short, the students of the Berkeley of the 60s and the 70s wanted to think for themselves. Now, I'm counting... Uh, this evening and tomorrow evening, well, I'll be speaking in the same venue, on the same spirit of intellectual honesty. Because now there's a new status quo. Now there's a new convention. Now there's a new crowd that demands compliance. And it's the ideas of this new establishment that I want to challenge tonight. I am here, uh, I think, in the spirit of the Berkeley of the 60s to challenge a status quo that doesn't allow, to a great degree, uh, people to think creatively about what many people have accepted as true. I'm here tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to know that there was a time when I never would have imagined my, myself saying those words 32 years ago when I was in this community myself. As uh, Manny mentioned, I thought I was too smart to become a Christian. I thought all Christians... I'm telling the truth, but I thought all Christians were either dumb or ugly. <laughs> or both. <laughs> this is why they went to church. They couldn't think for themselves, so they had somebody else think for them. And, uh, and they were just too socially unacceptable to find acceptance anywhere else, so they went to the church where one of the rules were, were that you had to love one another. It was just pasted up there in the back, you know. <laughs> but I was persuaded that Christianity was worth thinking about. And now, of course, the irony is I've given my life to uh, defending Christianity because I actually think Christianity is true. When I say I think it's true, I don't mean that it's my truth. I don't mean that it's my cultural convention. I don't mean it's my truth, small t, the way I happen to use the language. I think it's actually so. That is, uh, the real McCoy. I think that the way Jesus understood the world to be was accurate. Now, I could be mistaken on that. But I'm not making it up. I'm not just emoting. I've got an argument. I've done a lot of thinking about this over the years. And what I'd like to do this evening, I have a very modest goal, by the way. I'm not here to convert you if you're not a follower of Christ. That's not my goal tonight. My goal is much more modest than that. My goal is to put an intellectual stone in your shoe. I want to give you something worth thinking about. I hope that I make some points this evening and tomorrow evening on controversial issues that you have not heard before, maybe, that gets you thinking, that gets you questioning the status quo, that gets you challenging the conventions that have been handed down to you in this postmodern age. And this evening, I'd like to consider some thoughtful challenges on 
one of the two most important things you can think about, ethical truth. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about religious truth. And I think, ultimately, the two are related. Now, the thinking on both of these issues has changed pretty radically in the last 30 years. Let me tell you of an encounter I had with a young lady in a chiropractor's office just a few years ago. Actually, I think they should call it a chiropractor's office, you know, for obvious reasons. But I went in there to get cracked one day and uh, had some back problems, and the young lady was prepping me for uh, the adjustment. And so I like to talk to people and get their ideas, you know, just to ask them a few questions and figure out what they're thinking about critical issues. So I asked her if I could ask her a few questions, and she said, sure. And I said, do you think morality is objective in some sense, or is it just subjective? Is it just up to the individual? And she said, well, what do you mean by morality? And I thought, this is not a good start, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, morality, what's right and what's wrong, you know, ethics. And I'm going on, and it's clear that she's having a hard time following my, my point. So I thought I'd give her what we call in philosophy a clear case example. This is something to get things rolling, to remove the initial ambiguity, something like who's buried in Grant's tomb, you know, that kind of thing. How long... <laughs> was the Hundred Years' War, you know. <laughs> like one guy said, I would have dialed 911, but I couldn't remember the number, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I said to her, is murder wrong, the taking of an innocent human life without justification? Well, I said, well, what? <laughs> well, I'm thinking, she said. Well, uh, this was the, what do you, what's to think about? This is the easy one, you know. She said, well, I don't know. It's just, it's like, that's hard. It kind of depends on the circumstance. Okay, this wasn't easy enough for her. Is it okay to torture babies for fun? <laughs> then she said something that really sets the stage for what I want to talk about this evening. She said, I wouldn't want them to do that to my baby. Now, you think about the question I asked her. Did I ask her about her preferences or her desires or her wants? No, I asked for a judgment about a conduct, what she thought of torturing babies, and she talked to me about herself. I said, I'm sorry, you misunderstood the question. I was talking about the action, not about your feelings or preferences of what you would want. Even if you wouldn't want that to happen to somebody's baby, what if somebody did want that to happen to their baby? What if they were torturing that baby themselves for the fun it brought them? Would that be okay? Would that action be right? And under any circumstance, in any culture, at any point of time, could it possibly be morally justified to torture a child just for the pleasure that it brought you? Long pause. Mm. Finally, she said, you know, I think people should be allowed to decide for themselves. Now, I'm not making this up. I make some things up, but this I didn't make up. <laughs> What's going on here? Oh, by the way, I think that, to, you know, in her defense, I suspect that if this woman would have been awakened in the middle of the night by the screams of a child next door who was being tormented by her parents for the pleasure it brought them, she would consider these people barbaric and would probably picked up the phone and dialed what? 911, if she could remember the number. But it also goes to show 
how difficult it was, though in that circumstance, her natural moral common sense would have informed properly her judgments on the issue, when I had to talk to her, when we sat down and discussed the issue a little bit, and she had to think through the process, she could not bring herself to condemn torturing babies for fun as an objective moral harm. Now, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. It's the power of an idea, and the idea has a name, and the name is the topic of our discussion this evening, moral relativism. Moral relativism, the point of view that is held, a lot of folks haven't heard the term before, but it is what motivates statements like, who are you to say when there's a judgment, morally speaking, on someone's behavior, or don't push your morality on me. Now, why would somebody say, don't push your morality on me? Because they think it's illegitimate to push morality. That is, there is no objective, universal, moral set of principles that apply to all people. Rather, when it comes to moral choices, morality is up to the individual. Think of the difference between ice cream and insulin. With flavors, ice cream, you choose what you like, what's true for you. Different strokes for different folks, we used to say in the 60s. With medicine, though, you don't choose what you like. You choose what, heal, what heals, what's true for the circumstance. Moral relativism is the view that morality is like ice cream and not like insulin. So if I said something like um, premarital sex is wrong or abortion is wrong or uh, rape is wrong, on this view, those statements are the same kind of statements as if I were to say, I like butter pecan ice cream because it's delicious. It's just simply a preference. It's true for me. The question of right and wrong is purely an individual matter because there are no true objective universal ethical obligations or moral principles. So two people can be in the exact same set of circumstances on this view. And now I'm describing what moral relativism is. Two people can be in exactly the same set of circumstances but have totally different truths when it comes to morals. Now, these truths, moral truths, could be real cultural conventions, like, say, putting out cookies for Santa Claus is a real cultural convention, but Santa Claus isn't real. And on this view, real moral rules are fictions just like Santa Claus. And my apologies to any undergraduates who have just ruined your Christmas. Everybody's morality is, is equal because, and therefore should be respected and tolerated because nobody's morality is any better than anybody else's. And that's why you shouldn't force your morality on other people. Now, moral relativism is in contrast to another view. And tonight, I'm going, going to critique moral relativism to try to defend this other view. This other view is called moral objectivism or moral realism. And on this other view, there are true, objective, universal, ethical obligations and moral principles. It's not up to us. I mean, ultimately, each person has to make his own decision about what is right. But the answer to questions of a moral nature is an objective thing. We've got to figure out what that right thing is. But the answer is there. We don't make it up ourselves. We discover it. So the truth isn't individual on this. It's not like ice cream. It's more like insulin. We don't invent morality. 
On this view, by the way, moral rules are frequently self-evident, obvious, many of them at least, and uh, like the example of the torturing babies for, for fun. And, of course, if it turns out that morals are objective in some sense, if they have independent legitimacy apart from whether people agree with it or not, then everybody's morality is not equal. Just like everybody's math is not equal and everybody's medicine is not equal, not everybody's morality is equal. Now, why is this distinction important? I just want you to think for just a moment about the significance of this question for the sake of our culture. What is it that holds culture together? The thing that holds culture together is law. And law is, the, is, is, is on shaky grounds these days. Why? Because law has something that should be beneath it. Aristotle said that law stands upon a necessary foundation of morality. You hear people say, well, you can't legislate morality. If he's right, and I think he is, uh, morality is the only thing you can legislate. That is, if you don't have a moral justification for your use of force, if you are not using the power of government for the common good, but just using it for your own personal pleasure, that's despotism. That's fascism. No, all laws are tied to some kind of morality. Now, if, if laws get their legitimacy from morality, but it turns out, on relativistic views, that morality is nothing in particular, then there is no foundation for law, and there is nothing that helps to determine whether a law is a good one or not. All you have left is law. All you have left is raw power. Now, relativism is the prevailing view in our society. This is why it's so simple for people to say, who are you to say, and who are you to push your morality on me? Unfortunately, like a lot of prevailing views, and this is what I was referring to in my opening comments about Berkeley of the 60s and the 70s, is that these things are absorbed by the culture and they're not questioned. We are coming down Telegraph Avenue, and I, I drove by Moe's Bookstore for the first time in 32 years, still there. And there was a young lady that was selling little trinkets, little um, bracelet-type, beaded bracelets. And for all I know, she was there 32 years ago, too, because <laughs> it was the same kind of stuff they were selling on the street. But on the back of her little display, it had a statement, a sticker that she put there, and she was making her philosophic stand there, and it said, question assumptions. Well, I like that. And here's an assumption that we ought to question, that moral rules are relative, that it's up to the individual and nobody should judge and nobody should push their morality on somebody else. I want to question that tonight. And so the goal of, of this evening is to expose the myth of what I call moral neutrality. And I also want to talk about some serious problems with the, the way tolerance is, is characterized and the way it's practiced. And then I'd like to give you an actual argument why I think moral relativism is false. And when I'm done, there's going to be an opportunity to interact together here. So we're going to have some mics set up in the back, and for a good half hour or more, if you'd like to stay a little longer, that's fine with me. Uh, I will entertain your questions or your challenges to what I offer you tonight. Remember, this is an open forum place. This is where we work these things out in a charitable atmosphere so we can get down to the very truth of things. And I look forward to that time together with you. Now, sometimes relativism 
is uh, expressed in very sophisticated ways. And since I'm going to critique relativism this evening, I don't want to be guilty of mischaracterizing it or setting up a straw man, so I want to read you something that was written by Faye Waddleton on this issue of morality. Now, Faye Waddleton, many of you might know, is the former president of Planned Parenthood. Actually, philosophically, we have very little in common. But I am not reading this to ridicule somebody I disagree with. I'm reading it because it's very nicely written. In fact, it's so well written that you're, some of you might think, gee, I don't know if I'm, if I'm supposed to, from where I'm coming from, that I'm supposed to agree with what she says, but I don't know how I can disagree without sounding foolish. It's that nicely done. But there's a flaw in what she says. And I want you to see as I read this if you can find out what the flaw is. Quote, Like most parents, I think that a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts I can give my child. But teaching morality does not mean imposing my moral views on others. It means sharing wisdom and giving reasons for believing as I do and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction but tempered by tolerance, the essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. I've devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect I show her as a a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about, about childbearing. Of course, she's talking about abortion on demand there. Seventy-five years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. As she wrote, the men and women of America are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives, not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. Then she closes, I am proud to continue that struggle, to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter, or anyone else, that's not morality. It's tyranny. It's unfair, and it's un-American, close quote. Like I said, I, I think that's pretty impressive. Sounds so sensible. Sounds so reasonable. It sounds so tolerant. But there's a fundamental flaw. First, what's her view of morality? Well, going back to some of her comments, she said, we should trust others to think and judge for themselves, that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order, and Americans should be allowed to mold their lives as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. Now, it sounds to me like she's relativistic. In other words, she's promoting moral neutrality and non-interference. Everybody gets to make their own decisions about morality, and we should not be interfering with the decisions that she makes. Okay, so what's her flaw? Faye Waddleton errs in assuming that there is such a thing as morally neutral ground. Now, what do I mean by morally neutral ground? This is a very important concept. Morally neutral ground is a place where you can stand in which you have your own views about moral things and you keep them to yourself. Oh, you might report them to others by way of reporting autobiography by saying, well, this is my personal views. But you never, ever act as if your moral convictions have anything to do with other people. In fact, you are to be neutral with regards to those other people. Now, other people are on their own kind of island of moral neutrality, right? They have their views. They keep them to themselves. They don't enforce them on other people. They don't act like they have anything to do with other people. 
That would be impolite. And there's a space in between these islands of moral neutrality that all of us are supposed to be standing on, and that space has a name in our common vocabulary now. What do you think that space between moral views is called? Tolerance. Tolerance. Such that if you step off of your island into that space, if you act like your view ought to apply to other people, and other people are wrong by your standards, you've violated the neutrality and you've become an intolerant person. And let's face it, intolerance is one of the strongest um, uh, challenges you could ever offer to somebody in the context of our culture. Nobody wants to be intolerant. The word is used frequently for those who get out of line. The problem is, Faye Waddleton is not neutral. How do I know that? Because she told me right in her own piece. Peace. She wants to continue the struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs, and then she has this to say of those who beliefs on morality are different from hers. They are unfair, they are un-American, and they are tyrannous. Do you see that those are all moral labels? Each one is a moral judgment. If you disagree with her view of tolerance, that all points of view are equally valid, then she will not tolerate your view. Not only that, she'll even use the law to impose her morality on you. How do I know that? Because she said so. Where'd she say that? Quote, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. What legacy is she talking about? Her point of view. And what exactly is she doing to ensure that her daughter inherits the legacy of her point of view. She's a lobbyist. She's on Capitol Hill seeking to prevail upon men and women of power to pass legislation which will force people to live according to her sense of morality, even if it violates the morality of those people the laws now apply to. In other words, she is saying, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my point of view is enforced. And to sharpen the point just a, uh, a bit more, just about 10 years ago now, in May 1994, Congress passed a law making, a, making it a federal offense to block an abortion clinic. Now, regardless of what you think of that law, I want you to listen to what Pamela Moraldo, at that time the president of Planned Parenthood, said about this law. Quote, listen carefully. This law goes to show that no one can force their viewpoint on someone else. Now, that's funny because all laws force a viewpoint. That's the nature of law, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm not using these illustrations because I'm mad at Faye Waddleton or Pamela Moraldo or Planned Parenthood. And I'm not using these illustrations to object to what they are doing. I do not object. Please understand me. I do not object to them going on Capitol Hill and making their case and trying to get their point of view enshrined in law. This is the American way. Everybody gets a voice. Everybody gets a vote. More power to them. Here's my simple point. It's not neutral. Everybody in the game has a moral point of view they think is right, and nobody's neutral. 
Waddleton implies she is neutral and unbiased and therefore tolerant when she's not. She talks neutrality yet still seeks to force her viewpoint. Why? Because she's offering an ethic which sounds fair and tolerant, but it's a bankrupt moral system. It's called relativism. And every single person who promotes relativism falls prey to this problem. It's not neutral. It's not even tolerant, as you can see. It's very persuasive. It's also misleading and fallacious. This kind of neutrality and tolerance is a myth. Now, let me give you a further illustration of this because I'm really, my talk is in two parts tonight. I want you to see the myth of neutrality and the myth of tolerance, and then I'm going to give you an argument against relativism. But this may be the most important thing for you, for you to understand because, frankly, I do not think most people see this. And after I give a few more illustrations, I hope it jumps out, of, out in front of you every single time something like what I'm going to describe to you happens because there is a shell game going on here. There is a trick that's going on with tolerance. I call it the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. Now, I don't think that people who use this trick are doing it maliciously all the time. They have absorbed it from a culture that does not think about what they're doing. And by the way, I'm not pointing my finger at a non-Christian culture. Christians and non-Christians are the same in this regard. Well, what is that trick? Tomorrow night, I'm going to be talking about religious pluralism. And I'm going to be making the case that there is a religious point of view that is correct, and therefore, others are false. Now, generally, in the context of our culture, all you have to do is suggest that you believe something along those lines and people get very exercised. And I'm going to give you some illustrations about uh, TV shows that I've been on, and some very interesting things happened simply because I made this kind of claim. But the standard way that people respond to this is to say that I'm, what do you think? Intolerant. It's an interesting response because I make a claim about the nature of the world and then somebody says that I'm mean. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? Can you imagine if you went to your doctor and the doctor said, you've got cancer. The do and you said to your doctor, you're mean. <laughs> I'm going to go to another doctor who's nicer. But of course, this would be inappropriate because it, the claim is just a claim by people who make it like me about what they think is actually true. Now, I could be mistaken. Maybe I'm wrong. But I'm not mean, it seems to me. I might be mean for other reasons, but not <laughs> for that. So my question is always this whenever anybody says that I'm intolerant. I ask a simple question. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because the word intolerant can mean a number of different things. But I want to know what they mean by that when they call me intolerant. Now, sometimes they're not that cooperative or they think it's pretty obvious and they just repeat themselves. I mean you're intolerant. What are you, deef? You know, that kind of thing. No, I got you the first time. I just want to know what you think it means. Well, you think you're right, by golly. 
as this gentleman, I'll tell you about in more detail tomorrow night on the TV show, said, you have the corner and all the truth, you know, that kind of thing. You think you're right, and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> I say, yeah, I do. <laughs> now, I could be mistaken, though, but I'm not making it up. I've got reasons for believing what I do. I'm not just emoting here. I mean, I've got an argument. And you're going to have to disabuse me of my reasons if you want to change my mind on this. But let me ask you a question, and here's where I'm going to show you the trick. Let me ask you a question. The things that you believe contrary to me, we obviously disagree, right? Yeah. The things that you believe contrary to me, are those things right or wrong? Are your beliefs right? What do you think he's going to say? No. <laughs> Everything I believe is false. Please don't pay any attention to me. <laughs> they think they're right. Now, sometimes they'll, they'll, there's a little move at this point. They'll say, well, I'm right for me. And then my response is, well, if you're just right for you, why are you talking to me? I mean, it seems very much like you're trying to correct me, right? And if it's just your truth, well, then keep it to yourself. Don't get off your little island of neutrality. But he's off his island, right? He's totally in my face. Now I know there's a trick going on. He thinks he's right. Wait a minute. Why is it, I say, that when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, but when you think you're right... You're just right. <laughs> what am I missing here? Now, this demands an answer. And I've gotten answers on occasion. And here's the answer that I've gotten. You ready for this? The reason you're intolerant and I'm not is because I'm actually right. <laughs> I promise you, this happened more than once. Do you see the trick here? Everybody thinks they're right. That's why they believe what they do. To believe something is to hold that it's true. If you didn't hold it was true, you wouldn't believe it. You'd believe something else you thought was true. So why is it then when somebody that, whose ideas you, you don't like says that they're right, all of a sudden you have the liberty to call them names? See, this is all this is. This tolerance trick is just a way of silencing opinions that people don't want to hear. Look, if you don't want to hear my opinion, tell me. I don't want to blab at you if you don't want to listen. Walk away. Change the subject. Say, shut up. That's fine. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to force my view down your throat. But you see, these kind of people aren't walking away. They're doing some pushing of their own. And usually it's a lot more hostile and angry than anything I've offered. Now, the point I'm making here is there are right ways and wrong ways to deal with these kinds of issues. The charge of intolerance is not one of them. The charge of intolerance is almost always a trick. People don't know they're doing the trick. They don't know any better. Now you do. And if you are being victimized by this trick, you can ask the same questions that I've just asked. And if you are a victimizer of this trick, stop doing it. Do something more intelligent than calling names. Deal with the ideas themselves. Now, there's a reason why this kind of thing happens. 
people are very confused about what tolerance actually is. I was in Des Moines, Iowa in January, and if anybody's from east of the Mississippi, well, actually, that's not east of the Mississippi, but it's pretty close. It's cold in January in Des Moines. And I was doing some uh, teaching there uh, with students from University of Iowa at Ames, which is about an hour, hour away, but I did some speaking in Des Moines. And there was a Christian school there, and they asked me to come up and speak to the religion class of the seniors. And so I said, sure, I'll be glad to. But I got up to this class, and there was about 10 seniors sitting in a row facing me. Now, I don't usually like speaking to high school kids because it's like talking to a painting, you know. <laughs> yeah. You never, you know what I'm talking about? You never know what's going on. They're just sitting there like this, and you, give, you crack a really good joke, you know? And, and they sit there. Are you going to laugh at that? Are you going to laugh? No, we're not going to laugh. So these kids were in true form, like stumps on a log there, you know, and so I'm trying to draw them out, and I want to talk to them about this tolerance business, and so I, um, I, I finally I ask them, what is the prevailing ethic or moral principle or a thing you should always be and in our culture, and, you know, I'm finally, finally we get this tolerance thing out. Oh, yeah, we've got to be tolerant. That's really important. So I wrote the word tolerance on the board. Then I said, what is that thing? You say, we ought to be tolerant. Yeah, every one of them, Yeah. What does that mean? Back to the painting again. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the Last Supper. They're all sitting on the opposite side of the table. Frozen, you know. So I helped him out a bit. And finally, we got a definition on the board. And you tell me if this sounds right. Tolerance is the, view, is the, is the, is the point of view that all views are equally valid, particularly when it comes to morality and religious views. You know, all views uh, are equally valid. So if you think yours is right and somebody else is wrong, then as we talked about earlier, you violated tolerance. So we got that down and, and people were, you know, they wrote it down on the board and they got it. And so they're nodding their head. You know, I, I had them get out some papers, take some notes. You know, you might need this someday, even though it's only high school, I understand. But then I turned around and I wrote another sentence on the board. And here's what I wrote. I said, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jews who reject him are wrong. Ooh, them's fighting words, right? <laughs> man, I didn't even get the sentence finished before that picture came alive, man. It was technicolor, moving, kinetic speed, you know. MTV right there, you know. This gal in the corner waving her hand, you can't say that. Now, keep in mind, this is a Christian high school. You know, I actually expected a little different response. But here, even from people who I think should have a different point of view on this one, you shouldn't say that. You can't say that, is what she said. How would you like it if somebody told you you were wrong? <laughs> see, now you got it, right? Do you see that? I said, it doesn't bother me a bit. Like you're doing right now? <laughs> It doesn't bother me a bit. Why should it? Now, let me just make a little excursus here, and I'm going to be like dad for a moment, all right? Do you see what this understanding of tolerance is producing? This young lady felt that she had the right to be ticked off 
at me and tell me about it simply because I had expressed a view she didn't like. What this definition of tolerance is doing is not causing people to be more open-minded and charitable and kind and warm to people of opposing views. It allows people to feel angry when they have to listen to something they don't agree with. This is not pushing our young people towards maturity. It is pushing them back to childhood, ladies and gentlemen. How would you like it if somebody said you were wrong? It doesn't bother me a bit. I'm a grown-up. And if we are to be grown-ups... We are to learn that everybody is not going to think the way we think and we don't have to raise a ruckus because somebody shares an alternate point of view. Then I went back to the board because now I'm being challenged big time, right? And I I circled the first statement, which is the definition of tolerance. All views are equally valid. And I asked them a question. I said, is this a view that all views are equally valid? What do you think? Is this a view? Well, the graduate students help out here. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, it's a view. I mean, this one they got, even the high schoolers. Yeah, that's a view. Then I asked them the hard one. I went to the second statement. Jesus is Messiah, and those who reject him are wrong, and Jews who reject him are wrong. I circled that Sentence, and I said, now, is that a view? Long silence. Finally, grudgingly, yeah, that's a view. Well, that creates an odd situation, doesn't it? If tolerance means that all views are equally valid, then the view that the Jews are wrong for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah is just as valid as any other view. In other words, on this view of tolerance, on this definition, all views are equally valid, including those views that say all views are not equally valid. (laughs) All views are equally valid and not equally valid at the same time. You know what I call that? Boing. (laughs) Contradiction. This definition cannot be lived out, and nobody does. That's why they fall into the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. You want to know how to get out of this mess? You have to return to the correct definition of tolerance, not the newfangled version. You see, the definition of tolerance has undergone a change. Tolerance does not mean that all points of view are equally valid. True tolerance is all human beings are equally valid. All human beings should get equal respect. Even if we disagree with them, even if we don't like the views that they have, to tolerate a human being is to go along and and you can use the term put up with if you want, but you show respect for the person who disagrees. That's true tolerance. That's the view of tolerance that has virtue. Not all ideas have equal value. They don't, ladies and gentlemen. Some are good. Some are bad. Some are true. Some are false. 
Some are bright, some are stupid, some are foolish, and some are dangerous. And we ought to have the freedom intellectually to figure out which is which. True tolerance. All human beings have equal value, but all ideas don't have equal value. This is the thing that rescues us from this conundrum. But, of course, that means then that we have to be open to the idea that some ideas are false. Some cherished ideas may be false. And we have to be open to the idea of letting the free flow of ideas to be able to figure out which is which. That was the Berkeley of the 1960s and the 1970s. That was the United States of that time. Things have changed quite a bit. And this isn't a discredit on Berkeley now. That's not my point. My point is the whole culture has changed. And they are largely closed to meaningful, intelligent discussions on issues of morality and religion. And if they were open to it, I think they wouldn't make not only that mistake, but the mistake of relativism. And now I'd like to switch gears. Having talked about what I consider the, the, um, the, the myth of neutral ground and the myth of tolerance, I'd like to give an argument against relativism. Uh, up until now, I really haven't done that. I've just talked about some of the odd things that have attended this issue, but I haven't given you any reason to believe that relativism is false. Maybe, maybe it's true at this point. So now I'm going to give you an argument, and I'm going to argue in a very specific way, and I'm going to tell you what that way is. I am going to rely on something called an intuition. Now, when I use the word intuition, I mean something very precise. I mean the way philosophers use the term. I don't mean uh, a hunch. I don't mean a passing fancy. I don't mean a kind of a feeling about something. I don't mean women's intuition. The ladies, I believe in that, but that's not what I have in mind here this evening. I don't mean anything you've ever learned. I don't mean, mean an ability you gain after a long time working in a particular field. You get a second sense about or a sixth sense about. I don't mean, in fact, what I mean by intuition here is something you never learned. It's something you have to begin with. It's the kind of thing that you know, but you don't know how you know it. And if you didn't know these things, you wouldn't know anything else. If I, say, if I were to say to you, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore, what? Socrates is mortal. Now, how did you know that? Everybody always gets it right. Some guy says, well, I learned it in my philosophy class. No, you didn't. You knew that before that class. If I were to say to you, how do you know that given those first two statements, the third one followed, and you were pressed on it, you'd say, well, can't you see that? And if somebody you were talking to couldn't see it, you would be hard-pressed to prove it to them. Well, that is the proof. I mean, there, what's, okay, let me try it again, you'd say. All men are mortal. You got that? Socrates is a man. Got that? Therefore, mm. <laughs> you would think they didn't understand the original terms because there is a sense which, if you understand the first two sentences, the third thing falls right into place. It's a rational intuition. If I said Bill was shorter than Bob and Bob was shorter than Fred, how, what, would we, what would we know about Bill to Fred? Bill was shorter than Fred. Now, I helped you a little bit, you know, with the... <laughs> with the hands there, but you would have figured it out if you just thought about it because there's a transitive property there, and that would be true even if there was no Bill or Fred. This are, these are rational intuitions. These are built in. And as you grow, you're able to access them and make sense of them, but, they, but they're there. And, it, and, and this is true of any properly functioning human being. And if somebody wasn't able to get that stuff, you wouldn't know what to do with them. In fact, you would think something was wrong. Now, I think there are not only rational intuitions, I gave you some examples of that, not only aesthetic intuitions, but I think there are moral intuitions. 
That is, we have the ability to see that some things are objectively wrong. Now, why do I think that? I think that because I listen to the way people talk. I listen to the way people reflect on things. People use words to describe things that they see. I could say, this podium. I'm using a word, podium, to describe this thing in front of me. If I were to say, everybody look at the podium in front of me, and you were obedient, you would know what to do. You would look at the thing that my words referred to. So my words point at something, and you understand that. This is the way we have language. This is how we get along day to day. Now, sometimes words point at physical things. Sometimes they point at non-physical things. I said, you know, I have this idea. And you would all know what I was talking about. I'd have to give you some more details about the idea. But there the word idea is pointing at a non-material thing. So sometimes words can point at material things, and sometimes they point at non-material things, and we, this is the way we talk every single day. Now, we have words in our language that point at moral non-material things. We use them all the time. They are so built in that we cannot get away from them. Now, I suspect... My suspicion is that the reason that we talk about things in this way, we use certain words, and I'm going to go through some of them in a moment, to describe moral things, to identify moral things in the objective sense, is because we actually are aware of the existence of these objective moral principles. I had a debate two nights ago at the University of Washington on this issue. I started out. Every time I debate this, I've debated about four or five times on this issue. Every single time I tell my audience that what would, it would take for me to win is not only to is for one, I could win by showing them objective moral principles, but I would also prevail if my opponent smuggled into his challenge of my view his own moral principles. In other words, if he tried to defeat objective moral principles by using objective moral principles, you see how that would support my view. Now, I'm saying this to the audience with my opponent sitting right next to me. He's not in one of these little sound booths where he can't hear. <laughs> so I let him know what he's going to do, and I promise you every single debate. People have gotten up. They stood at a podium like this after I made my remarks, and they said something like this. Morals are relative. They're not objective. They're just cultural things. And, you know, when people think like Mr. Kokel thinks, they get all intolerant, and they start wars and do bad things like that. <laughs> well, if those things are bad things and intolerance is a bad thing, then I guess I win, don't I? Now, I, listen, I don't care about winning. What I want people to see is the truth of the matter. We talk a certain way because we're in touch with something. Now, if it turns out... And, and I'll give you the, 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 my, my uh, argument here, the rest of my argument in a minute. If it turns out that we are really tying into some objective moral truths with some of these words that we use, then, uh, then relativism is false. If it turns out that relativism is true, these words that we are using don't refer to anything meaningful, morally speaking, and we should just get rid of them or at least acknowledge that these are meaningful, meaningless things. Before I get to the examples, one last thing. I do not bear, when dealing with intuitions, I don't bear any burden of proof here. All I can do is point to, to these things and help you to see them, just like I did with the syllogism about Socrates. So in other words, if I were to say that rape is an objective moral harm, 
and somebody said, it's not clear to me that rape is an objective moral harm. I'm not going to try to prove it to them. I'm not going to be, be swayed from my conviction on this thing, and I'm not going to say, gee, that's an interesting alternate morality. I'm going to say, get help. <laughs> Something is wrong if you can't see that. Okay, let me give you some of the flaws. In the book, we have seven or eight of them. I'm just going to give two or three of them and then close up and we'll have our Q&A. Flaw number one, if relativism is true, you could never, ever accuse anyone of doing something wrong if what you meant by that phrase is that the action itself was wrong. You couldn't accuse anybody of doing something wrong. That would be like saying you broke the rules in a game that has no rules. Can you imagine going out in the quad or the wherever? You got a quad around here? What is it called? Sproul Plaza. Okay, so you're going to play Frisbee golf or something. or Actually, you've got a Frisbee or a football, and, and then you say, let's go out and toss the football around or the Frisbee. Well, are we going to play the game? No, there's no rules in this game. We're just tossing it around. So you get out and start tossing it around, and all of, somebody says, all of a sudden somebody says, hey, you're out of bounds. My ball. What? Out of, out of bounds? <laughs> there's no rules in this game. You know, foul ball. What? Foul ball. You, know, you can't have a violation of the rules in a game when there are no rules. And what this means then with regards to morality, if there are no objective moral rules, then you could never claim that someone has ever done anything wrong in the objective sense, that the action was wrong. Oh, you could talk about your feelings. You could talk about your culture or your language, but you never can talk about the action as wrong. Relativism thus becomes the ultimate pro-choice position. It legitimizes every personal choice, even the choice to be a racist or a gay basher or block an abortion clinic or kill abortionists. What's wrong with that if you're a relativist? I lived in Thailand for seven months. I worked in a refugee camp in 1982, and we were helping Cambodian refugees who had survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1975 to 1979. I talked with people that told me gruesome things of the communist revolution there in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, the red Cambodians, the communist Cambodians, and what they did to the people and to the children. In fact, it was not only the adults would tell me this, but I saw pictures that children would draw of the events that they experienced, like, taking, like Khmer Rouge taking babies and throwing them up in the air and catching them in the end of a bayonet and then pitching the babies into a big vat of water. And when it filled up with baby corpses, they made the people drink the water. They called it the baby broth. What's that? In relativism, that isn't anything. That's just stuff. You can't call that wrong if relativism is true. Now, I suspect you guys reacted to that. I could hear the groan. Somebody the other night accused me of using extreme examples to get your emotions going. It's not to get your emotions going. It's to bring your moral intuitions to the surface so you can see clearly. If your emotions are going, what caused that? It's your direct awareness of the evil of that action. If we are sure that some things must be wrong, that some judgments against another's conduct are justified, then relativism must be false. By the way, in those four years, two million Cambodians died of torture, starvation, and execution, according to Time magazine. Flaw number two. If I were, as a Christian, trying to convince you to believe in Christianity, 
and you were aware of what happened to those children in Thailand, what might be an objection that you would raise to my view about God? How could your God allow all this, what's the word? Evil suffering in the world. If he's a good God, how could he allow all this evil in the world? It's one of the most um, persistent objections against theism. But do you realize what must be necessary for the objection even to be raised? I'm not going to answer the objection now. I'm asking the question is, what, what does it tell us that we feel the impulse to, to raise the objection? What must be necessary to raise the objection? There has to be evil in the world. But guess what? If relativism is true, there is no evil in the world. There are no right and wrong things. They're just personal preferences. Some people like it, some people don't. You may not like it. You know, uh, four years ago in the spring, two members of the trench coat mafia went into Columbine High School, spraying bullets left and right, tossing pipe bombs. When the dust settled and the smoke cleared, 14 kids were dead. The shooters had taken their own lives, and the uh, teacher was dead as well. Six days later, I had a debate about Christianity and atheism. What do you think came up? This one. Of course, the LA Times had a headline, Where Was God at Columbine High School? Well, I understand that objection, but those, those kinds of things convince me more that God exists, not less. Why? Because I told those people that if, if uh, there were no God, if morals were just relative, if it was just an individual preference, there are a lot of things you could say about what happened at Columbine High School or in Thailand. You could say, oh, I, I couldn't sleep for a week. I cried when I saw those kids running out of that school, and I did. I was in the gym laying on the floor doing sit-ups, and there it was. You could say, I wouldn't let my kids out of the house. You would say, I, I don't understand how anybody could do that. I would never do, th do a thing like that. You could say all of these things that represented personal autobiography. But one thing you could never say, if morals are relative, about what happened at Columbine High School, is you could never say those acts were wicked. But that's the one thing you must say. In fact, it's the one thing everybody said. The reason that people raise this objection to the existence of God is because they think there is real evil in the world. They can see it. They experience it. But that could only happen if relativism is false. Let me just offer you one more thing here. I had more I could say, but we're short on time, and I want to have an opportunity to talk with you. Relativists can't promote the obligation of justice or fairness or, watch this, tolerance. If you're a relativist or if relativism is true, then there is no moral obligation to treat equals equally, to be fair, to punish the guilty, to let the innocent go free. There is no obligation that we have to treat other human beings with respect. In fact, there are no moral obligations whatsoever. The odd thing is, is people think that relativism promotes tolerance when relativism makes tolerance impossible. Why ought I tolerate people who disagree with me? Why ought I treat them res with respect? You relativists have just told me there are no objective oughts. It's up to me. Fine. Then I choose not to be tolerant, and you have no grounds for complaint. It seems to me 
if we ought to respect those who differ with us, if we ought to be just, if we ought to be fair, if these are genuine moral obligations, then relativism is false. Now, what I want you to see is the price that it costs you to deny morality. I think you know better. If there is no objective morality, you can't raise complaints about the babies in Cambodian babies under the Khmer Rouge or about Matthew Shepard, who was murdered by, by gay bashers up in Wyoming or Montana or the, whatever that cowboy state was. What is that? Anybody know? I always say the wrong one, and then the other cowboys get mad at me because it wasn't their state, you know. <laughs> but you could never say that thing was wrong. That's the price it will be if relativism is true. And I have to ask this question, who could live this way? Who can really live this way? Who can believe this? You know what? Nobody does. Nobody does. Wait, I thought you said that relativism is a prevailing view in the culture. They can talk this way. They can't live this way. Nobody is really a relativist. They can stand in line with you in the bank, and they are talking with you about morality, and they're saying nobody should push their views on anybody on morality, and then somebody cuts in front of them in line. And what do they do? Excuse me just a minute. Hey, you, Buster, in the back of the line, you shouldn't do that. Right? And then he doesn't say, and by the way, that's just my own personal moral point of view. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> just ignore me. <laughs> no, they really thought they were doing something wrong. I was talking to a young man at the same chiropractor's office. His name was Gil. And... Uh, he was a nice guy and tolerant type, and he was asking me about my own beliefs about stuff, and we had conversation, and, uh, you know, I, we talked about Christianity, and that was fine with him, until when we got on some moral issues, we got on the issue of homosexuality and heard, heard my view, which was that I think that homosexuals are human beings made in the image of God and should be respected and, as just like any other human being, but the conduct is immoral. Well, he got all upset. He said, you Christians, you're nice people until you start getting judgmental. <laughs> see, now you're starting to see something, aren't you? Well, I saw it too, and so I thought I'd just let him go a little bit further. I said, Gil, what's, what's wrong with that? Kitty, 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 kitty. You know, one of these. <laughs> he said, it's wrong to judge. And I said, well, Gil, if it's wrong to judge, then why are you judging me right now? Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so he's regrouping. And I can hear him mumbling to himself. And he, no, no, no. <laughs> Uh, no, that's not going to work. All right, he said, I was judging. I guess, um, gee, I guess, uh, I guess I was judging. Um, I guess it's okay to judge. <laughs> but, but, he said, you can't push your morality on other people. Once you push your morality on other people, then you cross the line. Now, he thought he'd, you know, bettered his lot, right? He didn't realize he went out of the frying pan right into the fire. Because I had another question for him. I said, Gil, is that your morality? That, you know, that you shouldn't push your morality on other people? Is that your moral point of view? Yeah, it is. I mean, the guy didn't see it coming. <laughs> God bless him. You know, it's like, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> see what I'm talking about? They can't get away from it. And finally, he says, it's not fair. I said, what's the matter? He said, I can't find a way to say it in which it sounds right. He thought I was playing a word trick on him. I said, Gil, it's not a word trick. It doesn't sound right because it's not right. It's contradictory. You're doing the same thing you're telling me not to do. There is no neutrality. Sometimes they get in a conversation like this and people get frustrated and they say, well, now you got me all confused. <laughs> I said, no, you were confused when you started. Um, 
<laughs> so, listen. Let me pull this to let me pull this to a close here. Um, we're faced with two only two possibilities: either moral rules exist or they don't. Object, objectivism with regards to moral rules or relativism. If relativism is false, and I think it's pretty clear that it is, then some form of moral objectivism has to be true. There are moral rules out there. Now, I think this has explanatory power. That is, I think this helps us to understand something. Because there is something I know about every single person in this room that you don't know that I know about you. You know it about yourself, but you try to keep it from people around you. You're trying to hide this. What is that? You have a bad self-image. Well, how do I know that? Because everybody does. It is the universal human condition. You see, we look down inside of ourselves at our, at our most uh, honest moments, and we see something inside ourselves that we do not like. And the thing that we see that's twisted and broken is moral. Something evil down there lurks. And we try not to show this to other people. We don't want them to see this. We try to deny it in ourselves, but we can't get away from it. We know it. Something's wrong. And that has a feeling. And the feeling has a name. What do you think the name of the feeling is about our own moral brokenness? Guilt. We all feel guilty. This is universal. The only one that doesn't feel guilty is a sociopath. Why do we feel guilty? Well, if our analysis that we've just gone through here is correct, this suggests a reason that we all feel guilty. We all feel Why do we feel guilty? Some people say, well, it's, you know, your culture. You know, you got Jewish guilt, and you got Catholic guilt, and you got Protestant guilt, and you got, you know, Polish guilt. I don't know. Everybody's got guilt. You got Asian guilt, right? <laughs> that works here. <laughs> so... So it's culture. Well, I've got an alternate explanation. I'm just wondering now, maybe, just tossing it out, maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. Is that a possibility? Is that in the running? And the way to deal with guilt, ladies and gentlemen, is not denial. That's relativism. The way to deal with guilt is through forgiveness. And this is where Jesus comes in. Now, I have a lot more to say about this point tomorrow night, so I'm not going to take time to talk about it this evening. But I just want to suggest in closing that at this point, I think Christianity speaks very truthfully. What it teaches resonates with our deepest intuitions about the world. One, the universe is a moral universe with moral laws that apply to human beings. Two, each of us has violated those laws many times and is guilty of moral crimes against our sovereign. In other words, the Christian me message makes sense out of the world. It is a dual message of justice and love. Justice that those who commit moral crimes ought to be punished that you already know. That's the bad news. And love that amnesty and mercy are offered to anyone who abandons the rebellion and seeks forgiveness. And that's 
the good news. And it's news I think is worth thinking about. Thank you. Good evening. Um, once again, uh, it's my privilege to introduce uh, <laughs> Greg tonight. Um, and I think uh, for those of you who are here, who are here last night, um, I don't think I need to add any more um, in terms of uh, his background. But I do want to, for the sake of those people who are joining us for the first time tonight, I just want to um, let you know that he is here. He is uh, as the founder and president of Stand to Reason. Um, he is also the host of a weekly uh, live radio show in the L.A. area. Uh, he's also an award-winning uh, author, and he has actually uh, given many talks throughout man many campuses, both in the U.S. and abroad. So we're really excited to have his presence here, especially on the campus of UC Berkeley. So uh, let's welcome Greg Kokel with a warm round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, this is kind of like deja vu all over again, you know. Um, I've had a great couple of days here. In fact, um, actually, today's Saturday, right? So it's only been one day. I've had a great two days here this one day, you know. It's like I've, uh, it's, it's been a whirlwind for me. I've met so many different people and... Um, uh, and some I've met before, and some I'll see again tomorrow, and many of you I've already shaken hands with. And um, I have a hard time keeping track of the individuals, so I just want you to know in advance, if I talk to you tomorrow or I'll be back in four weeks at another church in the area, you can check our website at scr.org if you <laughs> want to uh, find out where that's going to be. But um, uh, I sometimes uh, have a hard time keeping track of people. In fact, people ask me, since I answer questions or attempt to answer questions on a regular basis of a philosophic and religious nature, people ask me, what's the hardest question that anyone's ever asked you? And my response is, the hardest question, and this is really true, the, the question that I dread the most is when pe somebody comes up to me and says, do you remember me? <laughs> Surprisingly, I sometimes get that on the radio. You know, somebody will call me on the radio and said, Hi, do you remember me? And I say, Well, you, you look familiar. Uh, <laughs> many of you here uh, this evening have been followers of Jesus Christ for a long time. Uh, some of you are new followers of Jesus Christ, and uh, there are, I'm sure, a, quite a number of you that are not followers of Jesus Christ at all. No matter which group that you represent here this evening, though, I think that each of you is troubled, in some sense, by something that you've heard. And the thing that troubles you is this statement, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Other routes just won't get you there. All paths don't lead to the top of the mountain. All roads don't lead to Rome. There is a truth about religion, and Jesus is it, and other religions are false. Now, this is something that's hard for 21st century Americans to stomach. And to be honest with you, even if you're a follower of Christ, I suspect that you are uneasy about this. Let me let you in on a secret. I don't like it either. 
Frankly, if it were up to me and it were my heaven, I'd say, listen, if you're basically a nice person, you say, have a nice day, how are you doing, you smile, and you're basically a good guy, come on down, you can be in my heaven. The problem is, of course, it's not my heaven. And the idea that there is a qualification to get into heaven, and that qualification has something to do with Jesus of Nazareth, isn't my idea either. And so when people begin to get frustrated at me uh, because I make this statement, I say, listen, I'm with you. I don't like this idea at all, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And insofar as I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't tell you what I think is best, what I'd like, what it would be like if I were in charge. I have to tell you what Jesus said. And this idea that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven is something that he made abundantly clear in his ministry. Uh, not only did he make it clear, but his disciples made it clear. In other words, those people who Jesus taught to carry on his message after him had the same message. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Sometimes the people will say to me, well, you, you, you don't understand that. That's just your interpretation. I say, okay, how about what his disciples said just a couple of weeks after he ascended into heaven? Standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, his disciples said, there is salvation in none other. For there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I don't know how you could make it more clear. But people will say, well, that's just your interpretation, whatever. And so we put together a little booklet, this little red booklet here. It says, Jesus, the only way. Maybe I got one verse wrong or two verses wrong or four or five verses wrong, but I didn't get a hundred verses wrong. This little booklet has a hundred verses from the New Testament that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Nine lines of argument the authors give in the New Testament. And it's for the reading challenge. Look at that. <laughs> Real easy. We've actually got some back there at the table. Two bucks. Make no mistake about it. This is what Jesus taught. He was not a pluralist. This is what those people who Jesus trained to take his message after him taught. They were not pluralists. But of course, um, you might say just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's right. And I think that's a fair challenge. I could understand that coming from someone who's not a follower of Christ and is uncertain of the authority of the Bible. Fine. Um, I'd like to then discuss this issue with you just a little bit tonight. But let me su suggest some ground rules. Since this is a such, such a controversial issue, I think uh, it's fair to talk about a couple of common responses that are not helpful in the least in trying to adjudicate this issue. These are responses that pass as legitimate challenges in some circles, but they are not going to get us very far. Now, what are those responses? Well, I gave some examples of one of those responses earlier, or I should say last evening. Um, and, but it, it's a, a good example, I think, and it worth, it's worth repeating for those people who maybe didn't catch it yesterday. What if you had a friend who went to a doctor, and the doctor, after examining your friend, determined that your friend had cancer, and it was terminal, and it was, and it was uh, well, it was looking bad, and he needed treatment. What would you think of your friend if your friend heard what the doctor said and then said to the doctor, you're mean? Why? Because you gave this thing, this assessment that he didn't like. 
if you had a friend who responded to your doctor that way and then wouldn't go back to the doctor because he thought the doctor was mean for saying this, you would think your friend was pretty foolish, right? Because so much is at stake. Well, let me change the illustration just a little bit. What if somebody said, uh, what would you think if, if a person said, who is a Christian, said that Jesus Christ is the only way? In other words, gives an assessment of someone's spiritual condition and, ex and, and offers what that person believes to be the appropriate antidote. And then somebody responded to that person, well, you're just mean, you're arrogant, you're intolerant, you're narrow-minded, or something like that. Well, this isn't going to help. It, that is just as foolish to call the Christian a name for offering his assessment as it is for calling the doctor a name for offering his assessment. This is not a question about anybody's character. This is not a question about their personality. This is a question about whether their assessment is accurate or not. And that stands whether you like what the person says or not. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the Christian assessment is true. What it means is it doesn't help you to simply dismiss it because you don't like what you hear. And uh, frankly, I think the illustration is apt because Christians uh, uh, believe that human beings are dying of a spiritual disease. And that disease is sin. And that there is an antidote to that disease. And there's only one antidote to that disease. And there's a reason there is only one antidote to that disease. I'll get to that towards the end. That radical surgery must be performed by only one surgeon, and that is Jesus Christ. This isn't because we're mean when we say this. It's because we're concerned. Now, we might be mistaken, but we are not motivated. We are not animated by malice. We are animated by concern. Now, there's a, um, another response that isn't very helpful, and I mentioned this at length yesterday, so I won't spend much time on it, and that's the claim that when a Christian thinks that his view is the only right view, then that means he's arrogant. Now, friends, if I, as a Christian, am comporting myself in an arrogant manner, if I am being arrogant in the way I'm acting, well, shame on me. I should change that. But the objection isn't that I'm acting arrogantly. The objection is that I'm arrogant because I think I'm right. And as we talked about last evening, everybody in the game thinks they're right. So it doesn't seem to be fair or helpful to single out the Christian and call him names because he thinks he's right without realizing that everybody has their own opinions that they think are correct. There's another alternative or another response that, that also isn't helpful here. And what I'm trying to do now is just clear away some of the roadblocks that keep us from thinking clearly about this critically important issue. One of those was expressed, I think, by, uh, very clearly and, and uh, powerfully by columnist Thomas Friedman, um, who wrote in the New York Times soon after the tragedy of 9-11. And he wrote an article dealing with what he called religious totalitarianism. Thomas Friedman's point of view was that the real danger to this country is not terrorism per se, but rather what he thought motivated the terrorism, that is, religious zealots who thought they were right. And it became very clear in Thomas Friedman's piece, he was not just talking about these Muslim terrorists. He was talking about anyone who thought their religious view was correct. 
These are the true dangerous people in our country. And Thomas Friedman says we must stop this religious totalitarianism. We must must use every means within our power to silence that kind of thing. Silence what kind of thing? The point of view that many people in this room actually hold. That their convictions about religious truth are actually true. Thomas Friedman thinks you're dangerous. You must be silenced. Isn't it interesting that just believing that your view is correct is considered a totalitarian act, and Mr. Friedman's response on how to deal with that is to silence you. In other words, he wants to stop what he considers religious totalitarianism by imposing a secular totalitarianism. Now, I don't know if he'd actually go to that extreme, but this was certainly the tone of his letter. But, of course, the problem is Thomas Friedman has his own views about religious truth. Maybe he's a pluralist. Maybe he believes that all religions lead to God, and any religion is as good as the next. That is a religious conviction that he thinks is what? True. In other words, by Thomas Friedman's own definition, he's a religious totalitarian. This isn't going to work. One other thing that I want to dispatch here before we really get into the meat of the material is a different response. And I I have a niece that lives on the East Coast. Her name is Kirsten. And um, she is consistently being assailed by uh, many of her friends around her because she is a Christian and they are not. And uh, she emails me and uh, she says, hey, Uncle Greg. And then she, uh, she tells me this experience she has. Then I write her back a response. We've done this so much. I'm thinking about taking all of these responses and putting it into a book and entitling it, hey, Uncle Greg, you know. <laughs> so I've got all this hard work and I can, you know, publish it or whatever. But one of the challenges that she was offered was the, the challenge that if you believe that your way is right, that's narrow-minded. Now, she said, how do I respond to that? I said, well, to believe that your view is correct is narrow. Any claim to truth is narrow. That is the nature of truth. If you think that one thing is true, then anything that is not consistent with that belief is going to be false. All claims to truth are narrow. Narrow-mindedness is something entirely different. Narrow-mindedness doesn't speak to what you believe, but to the way that you hold your views. A narrow-minded person is a person that won't consider alternate views, who thinks his view is the only way and will not take into consideration uh, opposing points of view. A narrow-minded person is prejudiced with regards to other views. The irony is, is the person she was talking with had no interest in considering her view whatsoever. It was too narrow. Of course, he had his own views that he thought were true, and therefore everything else was what? False, and therefore his own view was what? Narrow. You can't get away from that. But not only was his view narrow like hers was, he was also narrow-minded. To hold a narrow view is not a problem. To be narrow-minded in the way you hold your view, that is, prejudiced against other views, you don't even consider them, you won't even look at the evidence, that's the problem. And that certainly isn't the case with somebody who simply says that Jesus Christ is the solution to man's spiritual ills. There are Christians that are narrow-minded. 
And there are plenty of non-Christians that are narrow-minded. But you can't know whether they're narrow-minded or not just by looking at their narrow point of view. This isn't going to work. So, being, calling somebody intolerant or arrogant or narrow or dangerous is not helpful in this conversation. This gets in the way of, of, um, of productive pursuit of the truth. Uh, there's another thing that's not going to help. And that's when somebody says, well, that's just your truth. That's true for you. You know, my response to that is I'm not exactly sure what that means. When somebody says, that's just your truth, I have a simple question. What do you mean by that? And you know what the response is usually? Well, that you believe it. I say, well, I do believe it, but why do you call that a truth? Because that's your truth. You believe it. So to say something is true simply means that you believe it. You have your truth, your beliefs. You have your truth, your beliefs. They have their truths, and everybody's got different truths. Upon which I have a question to ask. Can believing something make it true? Now think about that for a moment. Can merely believing something make it true? If that's true, then there is no difference between fantasy and reality. Do you see that? There's no difference between belief and make-believe. It's all the same. But if believing something can't make it true, then believing something isn't a truth. You can't be dismissed that way. When I talk about Christianity being true, I'm not just saying that I believe it. I, I'm saying that it's actually so, that the picture of the world that Jesus himself gave is an accurate picture of the world. Now, I, I could be mistaken on that. But it is the kind of thing that can be mistaken. My claims are either true or false, and it isn't going to do to dismiss them by simply saying, that's your truth. Finally, one way to dismiss, another way in a, that people often dismiss uh, the Christian in this discussion is with the simple statement, well, who's to say? Who's to say? Who's to say? Nobody knows. Who's to say? There's a very simple answer to that. The person with the best reasons gets to say. This has always been the case. If you have good reasons for something, then you are justified in believing it's true. And if you disagree with me on that point, if you say, no, that's not the case that the people with the best reasons get to say, I'm going to ask you, why do you disagree with me on that point? And guess what you're going to have to do? <laughs> you're going to have to give me reasons why you think it isn't reasons that make the difference. And so it's kind of a self-refuting enterprise. Right answers depend on right reasons. And so if we want to find out what's true, we have to give our best thinking to it. So I want to consider this evening the question of religious pluralism, that is, that all religions are equally valid, and whether or not that particular claim is true. If it's not true that all religions are not equally valid, then it might be the case that one religion is true and others turn out to be false. I take this view as a reason, uh, this task rather, as a reasonable one, and I don't think anybody should be faulted for trying to figure out the answer to that. And I'm suggesting that three responses to that are not helpful. To say that somebody's intolerant or arrogant or narrow or uh, dangerous because they have come to a conclusion about that. To say that this is just your truth. Or to say just dismissively, who's to say? And whether you're a Christian or not, don't let these kinds of foolish statements get in the way of trying to figure out what is really the answer when it comes to religious questions. But can we know anything about this? 
A lot of people don't think we can know anything. It's just a guess. I think we can. And I'm going to argue a general point and then a specific point. I'm going to argue first that religious pluralism is false, that it cannot be true that all views are equally valid when it comes to God. It may be that none are valid, but they certainly can't all be valid. The second thing I want to argue something specific is that Christianity is the religion that most accurately describes the world as it really is. That upon deliberation, I have concluded that there is one and only one antidote to to man's problem, and that's Jesus Christ. And I'd like you to consider some of the reasons so that you might conclude the same. So I have an agenda here today. I want to persuade you of something. I'm not saying this, by the way, because I'm mean or because I'm arrogant or because I'm intolerant or narrow-minded or dangerous. I'm saying it because I'm convinced that this is true. As I mentioned, I could be mistaken about this, but it is not animated by malice. It's an attempt to figure out what is actually true about the nature of the world and then pass that on. So let me tell you first why I think pluralism is false, and then I'll suggest two ways to help you know what the truth is, The two two of the ways that I think are good evidences for the truth of Christianity and that Jesus is the only way. About four months ago now, I was in Toronto, and I got flown out there on behalf of a TV show called Test of Faith. This is a national cable TV broadcast that I guess is quite popular in, popular in Canada. And uh, the, the setup is this. They have a semicircle table. Um, it's kind of like a donut cut in half. And so you have the semicircle out there, and then you have a small circle in the middle. And uh, four people sit on the outside, and one person sits in the middle, and they discuss a controversial topic. And the person that, a religious topic, Test of Faith is the, is the program. And the person that holds the controversial view sits in the small space called the hot seat. Now, who do you think was sitting in the hot seat? <laughs> Mr. Kokel was sitting in the hot seat. And so why was, what, what was the controversial issue that Mr. Kokel held to, to be true? And, and my view was that religious pluralism was false. In other words, it wasn't true that all roads lead to God. And on the panel were, in addition to the talk show host, a Sikh who is a religious, a member of a religious order from India. Sikhs wear turbans. The gentlemen wear the turbans. Um, there was also a Hindu pastor, and then there was also, I, I think it's fair to call this woman a liberal Christian who is representing the more liberal side of Christianity and, uh, as opposed to my more conservative view. And, and so basically we had an hour together, and after I made my case with the talk show host, she would bring on one person after another, and it was all gang up on Kokel for an hour in front of a national audience, <laughs> which was okay because I thought I had a fairly strong case. And in the first segment, I made my argument. Now, I want you to consider this argument because it strikes me as a very straightforward and reasonable argument. I told the, um, I told the, the woman who was the talk show host there, Valerie Pringle, I said, Valerie, Though I am a Christian, and this was part of the introduction, I am not going to argue today as a Christian. One way I could argue against religious pluralism is to argue for Christianity, that Christianity is the true religion, and if I prevailed, of course, then pluralism would be refuted in the process. But I'm not going to take that angle. I have a different way of arguing today. Um, The way uh, I'm going to argue is um, 
I, I, basically, I would argue this way, even if I were a, an atheist. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Either he was the Messiah or he isn't the Messiah. If he is the Messiah, the Christians are right and the Jews are wrong. If he's not the Messiah, the Jews are right and the Christians are wrong. But under no circumstance can they both be right. God is either personal or he's not personal. If he's personal, Jews and Christians and, and Muslims are right on that point at least, and the Hindus are wrong. Or uh, if he's not personal, the Hindus are right and the others are wrong, but under no circumstances can they both be correct. When you die, you go to heaven or hell or get reincarnated or go to astral worlds or go to the grave, but you're not going to do them all. <laughs> Do you see the conflict at the foundation of the religious enterprise? Different religions have different pictures of the world. These pictures are incommensurable. They can't be collapsed back into each other and all be basically the same. They contradict each other. Now, one of the questions that was asked, and it's brought up frequently, well, well maybe it's the similarities that matter. This was brought up to me by a student at University of California at Irvine, and I was in a, a gallery somewhat like this. And uh, so I went back to the board, and I drew two small circles on the board the size of a tablet, pill. And I said, Do these, are these circles basically the same? And she said, yes, they are. And then I drew a line from one, and I wrote aspirin. And I drew a line from the other, and I wrote arsenic. I said, now do you think they're basically the same? She said, no, they're not. You're right. It's the differences that matter. <laughs> just because they both come in tablet form doesn't mean they're basically the same. And just because a lot of uh, religions say you should love your neighbor doesn't mean they're basically the same. They are radically different. And in fact, faithful adherents to virtually every one of these religions all know that. And that's why... Those who hold to these religious views, almost without exception, unless they've been confused by American political correctness, hold that their religious view is correct. This is one thing I, is so refreshing about Muslims. They think we're wrong. I like that. They're not running around saying, well, we got our beliefs, but everybody's just as true as us. No, they think they're right. Now, that, 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 and, and that we're mistaken. And so, you know, that has, unfortunately, some dangerous ramifications depending on how they act about that conviction. But they understand that they can't all be correct. And that's my foundational argument. And so I offered this to the panel. The panel, most of them were sitting on the outside listening in, and they began to be introduced. Now, I think this is a fair argument. If you are a religious pluralist, you're going to have to deal with that. How can they all be equally the same when they contradict each other? Now, I offered the audience at that, in that TV show two ways out of this. As far as I can tell, there's only two ways to get out of this. For one, you could say that even though they have contradictory viewpoints, it doesn't matter. All religions could be true in this sense, that none of them are true. All of them are fantasies. They're all just, you know, uh, placebos. They just, you know, like Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. It's what you do to make yourself feel to get better. It's not anything real at all. It's just a trick you're playing on yourself. And in that regard, choose your fantasy. Any trick is good as, good as the next, as long as it does the job for you. 
Find your flavor, choose your fantasy, that's fine. Well, you could say in that sense all religions are equally true in that any religion that does the trick for you is going to uh, make you feel better. That's all that's necessary. Now, I didn't suspect that the other panelists would take that view because they were people with religious convictions. There's only one other way out of this, and that is by saying this. You know what? You're right. These religions conflict, and so taken at face value, these religious beliefs can't be true. But it turns out that God doesn't really care that much about the details, that God is more concerned with something else. He's more concerned with sincerity. He's more concerned with goodness. He's more concerned with people pursuing him. And as long as you pursue him in, in whatever way it happens to be, even though your understanding of God is not accurate, maybe you've got some of the details wrong, maybe you got it wrong about Jesus or whatever or on either side of the scale, that doesn't matter to God. God just wants people who are sincere. Now, can you see how that would be an end run around the problem? Of course, they're different, but that doesn't really matter that much. But here's the problem with that alternative. This is a rather dramatic statement about knowing what God wants. In principle, this might save the day, but then I'm going to have to ask you this question if you offer that alternative to me. How do you know what God wants? How is it you have this inside knowledge? Did God tell you? Is there some authoritative text you can turn to that characterizes God in this way that he doesn't care about the details? How do you know that's the case? This is a strong claim of religious knowledge that can't be just stated and thrown out there, as, and that's the end of it. It needs to be defended. One needs to give reasons for it. So I offered those two things as the end arounds, and I'm ready for my opposition. And uh, the first person up was a Sikh. Now, I have to tell you something about a prediction I made before the show started, though, because I got there early, as all the participants do, and I got in conversation with some of the people, the technical people behind the scene. I'm making friends and trying to be a good ambassador as a Christian and chatting with people, and I said, let me tell you how this is going to come down. I'm just going to make a prediction. We'll see if I'm right. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to make an argument about why I think religious pluralism is false. And I gave you that argument just now. But nobody's going to pay any attention to my argument. All of these intelligent people are going to bypass my argument and they're just going to attack me because I'm a Christian. They are going to call me arrogant and intolerant. That was my prediction. So here comes the Sikh. The Sikh was an attorney and a media person, and uh, we had had a small conversation behind the scenes, and it was a pleasant conversation. But now, you know, now we're in the arena, right? <laughs> so uh, he lays into me with a passion, a little passive-aggressively. He's smiling, but he's l looking for blood. And what was his big complaint? Did he address my argument? He ignored my argument. He went after me because people like me cause wars. People like me are intolerant. Oh, you think you have the corner and all the truth. Oh, good for you. You think you run the, won the lottery. I'm happy for you. You won the lottery. Good for you. But you're dangerous. You have no logic in your view. He said that he had a piece of paper or something he got from the Internet that everybody said, there's no logic in this. He's, you know nothing about logic. And I said, well, let's say law of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle, law of identity, inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, transductive reasoning, and for instance, and I, I think I know a few things. <laughs> Furthermore, I gave you an argument which you have ignored. 
Next person up is the Hindu. He merely stated that all, in his tradition, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Some roads go up this way, and this is what he said. This, I'm not making this up either. He said, some roads go up this side, some roads go up this side, some roads go side and side, and some don't get there at all. (laughs) I thought, that's my point. (laughs) So his illustration wasn't helpful, um, primarily because, and I did point this out, it's just an illustration. An illustration is not an argument. You can say all roads lead to Rome or all roads lead to the top of the mountain. This doesn't give you any reason to believe that they actually do. He just simply stated that. The Christian woman, the liberal Christian woman from the United Church of Canada, then got on board, and she um, said a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Among what she said is, you know what I think is arrogant, is when anybody thinks they know the mind of God. She's got a little lecturing kind of, mm-hmm. And her eyes are darting over to me, you know, like, we know who's guilty of this, right? Me. I think I know the mind of God. Then she goes on to explain, no, she doesn't think that uh, all roads lead to Rome. That's not quite the way all paths lead to God. That's not the, quite the right way to characterize it. She thinks that God made many paths to himself. Now, I guess she saw that as a clever variation. But that aside, I mean, I didn't see what it added, to be quite honest with you. But that aside, do you remember what she had said just a moment ago? She thought it was arrogant if anybody thought they knew the mind of God. (laughs) And by the way, God has made many paths to himself. Isn't that kind of a characterization of thinking you know the mind of God? So her view turns out to be self-refuting, too. For one hour, that's the way it went. For one hour, nobody addressed my argument. For one hour, I was attacked as arrogant, narrow-minded, and intolerant. And during that time, I said, listen, it's kind of curious how this happened. We started out talking about a topic like religious pluralism, and now we're talking about Mr. Kokel's character. How did we get switched over on this? I want to talk about the issue at hand here. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I think Jesus is the only way, but I could be wrong. And they seem to think that I was, which is an interesting situation. Because if I'm wrong, then Christianity is false. Therefore, it is not true that all religions lead to God. In other words, if I'm wrong... I'm right. (laughs) They never got it. The people in the audience got it. The atheist behind the camera got it. He came out to me after the show and he said, what the heck is wrong with that guy? (laughs) Using language appropriate for atheists, too. They got it. No one addressed my argument. It's a very simple argument. And just denying it, ignoring it, and getting mad at me isn't going to work. This is a serious problem for religious pluralism. It cannot be the case that all religions are equally true. 
There's got to be a whole lot of people that believe false things, which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus predicted. He said that the way to salvation in eternal life is narrow, and few are they, they who find it. But the way to destruction is broad, and many are they who find it. Not because that's the way God wants it necessarily. It's because people are very happy to go out into all different directions. Friends, these can't all be correct. So we ought to, just on, on, on reasonable grounds alone, dismiss this idea of religious pluralism. Now that puts us in a position of asking our second question. If all religions aren't correct, how do we know which one is the true religion? How do we know which ones are false? Well, I don't think this is as an intractable problem as some people think it is, because we are subconsciously testing things true or false every single day. And I think we can harness some of the tools that we are already using on a regular basis to judge whether things are true or false and use them and then use them um, uh, to help us answer some of these questions about religion. And I'm just going to give you two of them. There's more, but two I think will suffice for this evening to kind of get you thinking about this. First, one way that we discover the difference between true things and false things is simply by reflection. Some things, it seems, just can't be so. If I were to say to you, by the way, that down in my car rental, down in the street, I have in the glove box a square circle. How many, how many would pay a buck to see my square circle? Thank you. All of you raised your hand. I have some seashore to sell you in Montana. I hope you realize there cannot be a square circle in my glove box in the car because they don't exist. You know they don't exist because they entail contradictory concepts. A circle has one side, a square has four sides. It can't have one side and not one side at the same time. It's a contradiction. There are no such things as square circles. We could reject this not because we've looked around in the world and discovered empirically they don't exist, but because the notion itself is contradictory. Guy says, I met a woman who is 10 years younger than her son. Would you believe him? No, you shouldn't, because no empirical search is necessary to reject the claim. Even if the most brilliant person alive said this, you could immediately reject it. Now, there's some other examples of this kind of thing. For example, one person said, if you want to know whether you're home or not, just go outside and look in the window. <laughs> all right, we didn't all like that one. How about this one? One mother wrote to her son at college, your sister had a baby this morning. I haven't heard if it's a boy or a girl, so I don't know whether you're an aunt or an uncle. Then she signs the letter. If you don't get this letter, let me know and I'll send you another one. <laughs> this must be the graduates up here and the undergraduates over here. This kind of a <laughs> delayed factor. Oh, I think the high school group is here, but at least they're smiling. That's good. <laughs> I think we should give a hand to the high schoolers here. 
One person once told me, Coco, you hit the nail right between the eyes. <laughs> that leaves a bad taste in the back of my mind. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> you ever have your mother tell you, don't look at me with that tone of voice? One, one politician once said, this is the greatest planet on earth. You know, <laughs> you, you see, there's something wrong with these statements. You know, they just don't fit together. There's a, a kind of an incoherence there, and this is what makes them funny. Unfortunately, some people believe odd things like that. Now, there are some things, by the way, that may seem odd to us, or inscrutable that aren't actually incoherent, that is contradictory. And I'll give you an example from my own tradition. Christianity teaches that God is triune, that there is one God and there are three persons. Many people will want to reject Christianity on this grounds. Why would they reject Christianity on the grounds of the Trinity? Here's the reason. Christianity can't be true because Christianity believes in the Trinity and the Trinity is contradictory. Do you see how... People who reject Christianity for this reason are employing this tool that I'm talking about. They understand that certain claims about religion can't be true if they entail contradiction. Now, in this case, I think they're mistaken. They're right if there was a contradiction in Christianity. It should be rejected. But there is no internal contradiction in the concept of the Trinity because the Trinity teaches that there is one God and three persons. One God and three persons. Now, if we taught there was one God and there were three gods, that would be a contradiction. If we taught there was one person and three persons, that would be a contradiction. But we're not teaching either of those things. Christianity holds that there is one God and three persons. This is not a contradiction. Is it weird? Yes. Very weird. But it's not contradictory. I don't know how to understand entirely what this notion entails. There are a lot of inscrutable aspects to God's character. It certainly is odd, but it's not incoherent. It's not contradictory. Incidentally, the objection to Christianity or other forms of theism based on the problem of evil is, a, is, a, is an attempt to employ this principle of trying to determine what's true. Because the argument against God based on evil goes something like this. If God were good, he'd be able to, he'd be, he, rather, if God were good, he'd want to deal with evil. If God were powerful, he'd be able to deal with evil. But evil exists, so either God isn't good or he's not powerful, in which case Christianity is falsified. Now, if that argument is sustained, then I think that's a good argument against Christianity because it would entail a contradiction and contradictory notions cannot be true. It, does, it isn't sustained, and I don't have time to talk about this issue. We have um, some tapes on this, and I, I made reference to some of the ideas a little bit last evening. But the point I'm making is that people have the impulse to raise these kinds of objections because they understand one of the ways to assess a religious claim is to use this test, the test of coherence. Now, let me give you an example of a religion I reject because I think that it violates this, this test. Uh, this is why I reject religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says that all religions are equally valid or equally true, but they have contradictory truth claims. Therefore, they can't all be equally true. It's a violation of coherence. That's why I reject pluralism. It's the argument I gave you a few moments ago. But it's also the reason that I reject Hinduism. Why? Because Hinduism holds that 
that the, essentially there is only one reality, and that reality is a unity. It is classical monism. There's only one thing that exists, and that thing that exists is God, and God is a, an impersonal force. Well, what does that make of you and I? That makes us part of God's illusion. The problem is, and by the way, the word for the illusion is Maya, M-A-Y-A. This is all Maya. We're all part of the illusion. Now, some people think this is dignifying. They think, yes, we're all God. And that's, that makes us feel great because on this view, we're all God. But on this view, we're all God only in the sense that we're part of God's dream. That's all we are is a dream. We're not real. Now, here's my question. How can I know that I am not real, but I am an illusion. Do you see the inherent contradiction in that concept? I have true knowledge about myself, and the true knowledge I possess about myself is that I am not a self. (laughs) (laughs) I know that I don't exist. Or, to paraphrase Descartes, I think, therefore I ain't, you know. (laughs) You know that somebody told me that Descartes, Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, went into a... um, coffee house once, and, and they, they, somebody offered him a cup of coffee. He said, would you like some coffee? He said, I think not, and he disappeared. <laughs> it's a philosopher's joke, so I guess you have to be there. But do you see the, what seems to be the foundational incoherence about this view? So, you know, uh, some of you had dreams last night. Think about the characters that were in your dreams. Did those characters in your dreams know that they were in your dream, that they were dream characters? No, they didn't know anything. They weren't real. Put another way, does Charlie Brown know he's a cartoon character? (laughs) Of course not. This is why I reject Hinduism out of hand, because it requires me to affirm that I can know that I am really part of an illusion. This seems to me wildly counterintuitive. It seems to me that it's incoherent. Now, I was talking about this on the radio show one day, and I had a Hindu person call in and object. And here's what he said. He said, you're misrepresenting Hinduism. The illusion is real. (laughs) It's a real part of the deception. Do you see how incoherent ideas Produce incoherent people. I rest my case, you know, that's all I had to say. So the principle here is that true ideas are not internally contradictory. Lack of coherence immediately disqualifies a viewer belief. And if your view of God or religion or something entails some kind of contradiction, you're on, you're on very thin ice or, or you're on thin ground. I guess I could say that too, you know, you're hanging from a thin limb or something, some kind of incoherent illustration I could offer there. A lack of coherence, by the way, disqualifies the view. You want to let that go. I had a caller also said, you're so closed-minded, you won't meditate to see if Hinduism is true. And to me, that was like an adult saying, you're so closed-minded, you won't even come by my house to meet my 10-year-old mother. I don't have to go by your house to meet your 10-year-old mother. There are no such things. And so I'm not in the least bit um, attracted to Hinduism for that reason. I have no temptation nor feel any rational obligation to consider Hinduism. There's an example of employing that to eliminate some options as legitimate options for consideration for truth. Let me um, offer you another test that I think is the one we are most familiar with, but to some degree, 
we are most uncomfortable with when, we, when it comes to religious kinds of questions. So I want to introduce this by asking you a couple of questions to show you how familiar this is to you. How many of you believe that the sun is at the center of our solar system? It's not a trick question. I can see like... Oh, the high schoolers are into it, though, man. They're, they know that, right? Okay. Well, I think it is, too. All right. How many uh, of you believe that water boils at 212 degrees at sea level? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I can see you looking at it. What is this? You know, he's, it's not a trick question. Does it boil at 212? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you do this. How many of you believe that electrons go around an atom? How can you know that electrons go around an atom and you don't know what water boils at? <laughs> What's up with that? Here's my question. I think you all know all of those things. How do you know those things? Anybody gone in the space shuttle to kind of look at where the sun is positioned with regards to the earth? How many of you have actually... Uh, taking your water down to sea level and boiled it and put a temperature thing in it. Obviously, not too many. <laughs> and, of course, I know none of you have seen an electron going around an atom. How is it that you know these things? I'll tell you how you know these things. You know these things because somebody told you. You know these things because an authority told you it was so. In other words, you know it based on authority. Do you realize that virtually everything you know that it is not your direct perception, you know based on somebody else's say-so? Everything that happened before you were born, everything, or before you can remember, everything that happened uh, so far away that you've never seen it before, everything that happens that's so small you can't see it with the naked eye, all of these things you think you know, which is a whole lot of things you're taught in the university here, you think you know this principally because somebody told you. And you may have reason to trust that this person is reliable, and that's why you believe it. And that goes to show that, the, uh, for one, that knowledge by authority is a very normal way of knowing something. Now, let me give you another illustration. What if I were to uh, ask you to do something for me? What if I were to say, describe my mother? You think you'd have a hard time doing that? What if I forced you to give a description? And I could do that, but for the sake of time, I won't. But if I asked Manny, I said, Manny, describe my mother. You know? Well, he, he doesn't know my mother, right? Okay. <laughs> so he, he might just come up with something else, all right? And so you could listen to Manny's description, or anybody else's for that matter. And then I say, okay, I'm going to now describe my mother. Which one would you believe, Manny or myself? <laughs> Me, right? Me, right? Okay. <laughs> what this shows us is that some people, it actually shows us two things. Some descriptions of my mother could be wrong. <laughs> Even though there's only one mom for Mr. Greg Kokel, some descriptions still could be wrong. Secondly, some people are in a privileged position to give the right answer. That's what the issue of authority is all about. 
Some people have an inside line on things. They can speak with greater authority. And this gives us a principle by which we can discover truth. And that principle is that we can, that true ideas are affirmed by reliable authorities. So our vital question with regards to any authority is, is our authority reliable? Why should I believe any particular source of authority? Can it be trusted? And that's a fair question to ask of anybody that offers you their point of view or something. You want to see their reasons. Basically, what I'm doing here is I'm just letting you know that among the ways that we test whether a thing is true or not, one of the ways that we are very familiar with and very comfortable with is the, the means of authority. And that some people can be right and some people can be wrong and some people are in a better position to determine the truth about a matter than others. Now, how does that cash out with regards to religion? Let me focus very much now here in the remainder of our session because this is where I think the rubber meets the road for us. You ask me why do I believe Christianity is true, I have a very simple answer. Because Jesus said it was. Jesus is the authority that I trust about these things. Now, why should I trust Jesus? Let me give you a couple of reasons. One, it seems, is that the question is a little bit odd in this sense. Almost everybody has a very high opinion of Jesus. Have you noticed that? How people will invoke Jesus for their view? So when you're discussing about homosexuality, a homosex those in favor of homosexuality might say something like this, but Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, why should we care what Jesus said? I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely relevant. He never said anything about slavery or about wife beating or child abuse or gay bashing either. So his silence doesn't tell us anything necessarily. But why would somebody want to quote Jesus? Because they think Jesus is a good authority. Jesus is somebody to reckon with. When I said earlier on, you know, Jesus is the only way. Don't be mad at me. He's the one who said it. Right? Well, that changes the nature of it, right? Because who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just Coco. You can disagree with me. What do I know? But Jesus is a lot harder to disagree with because he has credibility and people know it. And that's why I put it back on him. It's his claim. Not only that, the identity of Jesus Christ is the central issue of Christianity. And in this regard, Jesus is absolutely unique. There is nobody like Jesus in religious circles. Um, if you had, take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still have the teachings of Buddhism, and so Buddhism is intact. If you take Muhammad, the prophet, out of Islam, you still have the teachings that Muhammad offered, and, the, and Islam is still intact. You can do that with every single religion, but if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you no longer have Christianity because Christianity is not about his teachings. To be honest with you, Jesus' teachings were not that unique. He pilfered a lot from the Old Testament. Now, on my view, he wrote it, so it's not plagiarism, right? <laughs> but a lot of things that he said could be found somewhere else. I mean, he gave a little spin to it that was unique, and he had some insight and whatever, but his teachings themselves are not what made the day. It was Jesus himself. Jesus drew attention to himself. The Christian faith is founded on a person, not a teaching. 
Most religious leaders minimize themselves, and then after they die, their disciples deify them. When Jesus was here, he drew all the attention to himself, including deifying attention to himself, and and, and he got himself crucified, and his disciples fled. Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he said of the same disciples, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question anyone could ever answer. This was central to Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, he was tried before he was crucified in a kangaroo court. And what was it that, that sent him to the cross? It wasn't any crime that he committed because they could find no crime that he committed. In fact, if you saw the movie The Passion, and I suspect most of you did, you saw a fairly realistic rendering of that particular kangaroo court that found him guilty, not of any crime that he committed that people testified to, but the crime that came from his own lips. And what was that crime? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? That was the question placed by the high priest. And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. And henceforth, you will not see me unless you see me coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And here, making a clear reference to the prophecy in the book of Daniel of the one like a son of man, the glorious God coming in return, the messianic uh, kingdom being, being, coming to earth, that Jesus referred to in the, uh, the high priest tore his robes. And he said, we don't need testimony. We don't need witnesses. You have heard it from his own lips. He has blasphemed What was the blasphemy? That he claimed to be the Messiah? That's not a blasphemy. Somebody was going to be the Messiah, or so they thought. His blasphemy was his claim to be the Son of God because in the context of that culture, that was the claim to be God. Jesus was not executed for what he did, ladies and gentlemen. He was executed for who he said he was. That was his crime. And when you look at the kind of things that Jesus said about himself, they were quite radical and quite profound. He said he was the son of God. He said he was the giver of eternal life. He said he was the bread of life and the true vine, the great I am, the giver of living water, the light of the world, the future judge of the world, the door of salvation, the resurrection and the life, and the only means of salvation. Now, can you imagine if anyone of us would ever make a claim like that. I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't people walking up and down Telegraph Avenue who are talking like that. I think I saw some of them today, in fact. Nobody's taking them seriously. These are unbelievable claims for any ordinary human being to make. But when Jesus made them, people didn't laugh and scorn. They listened. They sent people, they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers came back empty-handed. They said, why didn't you get him? And the soldiers said, no man speaks as this man speaks. Jesus spoke with incredible authority. Now, here's a simple question that I have to ask you. Was Jesus right? He's either, either right or wrong. He either was God the resurrection and the life, the Alpha and the Omega, the only way of salvation, or he was not. Simple options. If he was wrong, we only have two options to that. Either he knew he was wrong, or he didn't know he was wrong. If Jesus claimed to be God, and he knew that he wasn't God, 
if he claimed to be the only way of salvation and he knew he wasn't the only way of salvation, what was he doing? He was lying. He was telling everyone one of the greatest lies in all of history. Now, I just have a question to ask you. Do you think that it makes the most sense that when you look at Jesus' life and the first-person accounts, the eyewitness accounts that were written about him, the people who knew him best, that recorded the events of his life, do you think it makes sense to account Jesus as a mere liar? Jesus gave us some of the greatest moral teaching the world has ever seen. It is so incredibly sublime. Does it make sense that he was a liar? Even his enemies couldn't find guilt with him. No, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, that Jesus is a liar. It certainly doesn't fit with our understanding of the life that he lived. Well, maybe he, he was wrong, but he didn't know he was wrong. Maybe he thought he was God, but he wasn't. Maybe he was deluded. Maybe he just thought he was the savior of the world. Maybe he just thought he was the resurrection, the life, the living water, and the great I am, and he wasn't. Now, what do we make of a person who thinks that he actually is all those things, but isn't? Telegraph Avenue, <laughs> right? This guy is, you know, the, the light is on, but nobody's home kind of thing. This is not somebody that's in possession of his senses. But I have to ask you the question, knowing what we know about Jesus, does he look like a man who is not in possession of his senses? Does he look like a crazy man? People consider Jesus one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. He is one of the greatest moral teachers that ever lived. He's one of the most profound um, teachers of religious insight that ever lived. Is this what we're left with? A crazy man? A liar? This does not seem to fit with the facts. But if Jesus is not a crazy man or a liar, the only two options for him not being who he claimed to be, then he, by process of elimination, must be who he claimed to be. He is either, as one person put it, a liar or a lunatic, or he's the Lord. You don't have any other options. Now, Gee, this may not be a knockdown, drag out argument to some people. I think it's pretty good. But it's something to contend with. If Jesus was right, and like I said, most people consider him pretty cool, then all other views are wrong by definition. Anyone who disagrees with him must be false. As C.S. Lewis put it, the Cambridge scholar, either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit in him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let not one of us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. One thing that is very hard to get away from is that Jesus had unimpeachable credibility. He was a phenomenal man. Everybody knows this. If that's the case, we should take what he says seriously because it wasn't just what he said. It was what he did. This man who claimed to be God also could control the forces of nature. This man who claimed to be the Savior could cast out demons. This man who claimed to be the only way to salvation could heal the sick, could raise the dead, 
and in fact predicted his own death and resurrection and three days after that brutal crucifixion on the cross which you saw in that movie depicted I think fairly realistically he raised himself from the dead and convinced his disciples that he was alive and well even though they had abandoned their post and they transformed uh, 11 men and a whole bunch of other people from hiding in the corner to coming out and proclaiming the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anybody who can do this has gotten my vote. Jesus has tremendous credibility. I think Jesus demonstrated his claim that he was the only way. Now, I just have one other point to make, and then we'll have some questions and interaction. Why? Why is Jesus the only way? Why did it have to be that way? I was uh, in a Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, and I was doing a, a thing, a, a kind of a presentation of the book I'd written on relativism. And, you know, you set up the chairs in the middle of the aisles, and then the author comes in and talks a little bit, answers some questions, and then signs some books. Three in my case. But <laughs> a gentleman had overheard my conversation from the outside aisle there, and he came over and he said, you know, I remember you from another radio program. You're that same guy that was on Religion on the Line, aren't you? He said, I said, yeah. He said, I got a question for you. Why do I have to believe in Jesus? Why is Jesus the only way? Listen, I'm a Jew, he said. I believe in God. I try to live the best life that I can live. Why is it that I have to believe in your Jesus? Help me out here. Now, he was amicable. It was a friendly conversation. He wasn't harsh, but he wanted to know an answer to this question, and I think Christians have not been careful to give good answers. I think Christians have said things like, Jesus died for your sins. If you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. And these are true statements as far as they go, but I think to a lot of non-believers, they're just nonsense. They don't understand this, and this was the nature of this question. And so I said, let me ask you a few questions. <laughs> do you believe, listen to the first question carefully, do you believe that those who commit moral crimes ought to be punished? He said, well, since I'm a prosecuting attorney, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I got lucky in the attorney part, but most people have this sense if you do bad, you ought to pay for it, right? So good. I said, so do I. Next question, have you ever committed any moral crimes? Mm, now this is personal, right? What do you think he said? Yes. Yeah, I guess I have. What did I say? So have I. I said, now look at where we've come here in just 30 seconds. We both agree that people who commit moral crimes ought to be punished, and we both agree that we have done those things. You know what I call that? Bad news. We're in trouble. We know that there is a justice and that someday we will feel it. We know that we're guilty. We know that God is ready to is, is, is just in judging us. And I think, and I talked about this a little bit last evening, I think we all have this awareness. The nature of the guilt that we all feel is a sense of fear and dread of the punishment that we deserve. We know we have it coming. He did. But when I talked about that particular issue, it turns out, gee, yeah, I got it coming. That's not good news at all. This is bad news. Now that I've established that with you, let me ask you a final question. Are you interested in clemency? <laughs> Are you interested in a pardon? Are you interested in forgiveness? 
You see, people aren't interested in those things unless they know they need them. Part of my job as a follower of Jesus Christ is to point out the problem before I offer the solution. But the problem is something that we all know about. And then I went to explain, since we both know we have this need, the reason Jesus is the only way is he is the only one who made it possible for you to be forgiven. How does that work? And then I began to explain to him, in simple terms then, what many of you saw but maybe didn't understand when you watched the movie The Passion. Because you saw Jesus of Nazareth in a very historically accurate depiction of, a, of his, his uh, arrest, his trial, his scourging, and his execution. And I understand that for many of you this was hard to watch because it was so bloody. And of course, that's the way it was. And I got an email from the atheist from Canada who was on that TV show, who I had had a time to talk with and about my own convictions about Christianity. I sent him a copy of the book on relativism, and he emailed back, and he says, well, I'm still an atheist, but at least I'm no longer a relativist. <laughs> I said, well, Peter, you got, you, you got a new problem now. You know, let's talk about that. <laughs> but he sent me an email just the other day, and I saw it, and he said, I saw the movie The Passion. It was very moving. It really touched me. I, 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 it was so wonderful, and I understand now what the movie was all about. It was all about tolerance. <laughs> I thought, how did he get that from that movie? Mel Gibson, who made the movie, made it really clear what he was trying to communicate. It was the same message of the New Testament. The movie starts with a statement from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. It says, by his stripes we are healed. It's his scourging that was the punishment for our sins. That was the introduction to the movie. This was Jesus' own assessment of his death. What was going on there? Why all the blood? Why all the punishment? There was a reason for this. Who took Jesus' life? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Who killed Jesus? Nobody killed Jesus. You want to know who killed Jesus? Ask Jesus. Jesus says, nobody takes my life. I give my life up on my own accord. I choose to die. And he surrendered himself into the hands of sinful men for all the gruesome treatment that he, he received that you saw for a reason, to rescue sinners around the world because something was happening in the spiritual realm that could not be seen in a film on that fateful day. Good Friday. I wrote a piece about this, in fact. You can find it on our website. It's entitled, The Christ of the Passion, What the Movie Couldn't Show. Now, I think Mel Gibson did a fairly good job in the context of the film of communicating this idea, but I still think it was missed on some people. Because there was something a movie can't show, and that is what God was doing for those three hours of darkness that shrouded the cross. What God was doing during that time was a transaction was taking place. And we read about it in the Bible. You notice that a certificate was placed above Jesus' cross. What did it say? King of the Jews. That was a certificate of death. This was the listing of the crime that Jesus had that he was being punished for. Normally, after the criminal was crucified or punished or imprisoned or whatever, that certificate is removed and it is stamped with a Greek word, tetelestai. That word means paid in full, canceled. The debt has been fulfilled. 
And no one could be punished for that debt again because it's been paid. It's like having a canceled check. You paid the bill. Now, that certificate said king of the Jews. That wasn't Jesus' crime. That wasn't a crime at all. But Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Colossians in chapter 2, says that there was another certificate that was being nailed to that cross. He said it was, certificate, it was not Jesus' certificate, it was our certificate, which consisted of decrees against us and were hostile to us. It was the list of our crimes against a holy God. And in the heavenly realm, so to speak, in the spiritual way, in a way that we couldn't see it, God the Father was nailing that certificate, that list of crimes, that rap sheet, that, that were the crimes of all of us, onto Jesus' cross, and then God poured his fury out on his son in exchange for our release. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he is the only one who paid the price. He was the only one that didn't have to pay. He was perfectly innocent. He had no crime whatsoever. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, God the Father made him Jesus who knew no sin at all to become our sin so that we could take his righteousness. The transaction that took place in the darkness of those three hours on the cross was a transaction between the Father and the Son in which Jesus took all of our sin and the penalty for it and paid for it and he offered our, his righteousness to us. And that is available to anyone who will receive it. You thought that was gory, what you saw in this film, what man did to Jesus? It wasn't anything compared to what the Father did be to Jesus because of us. But Jesus says, no one takes my life. I give it up willingly to rescue and save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him, put their trust in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. See, friends, religious pluralism is just false. It's obviously false. Something else must be true. Don't take refuge in the empty slogan that all roads lead to Rome, or all paths lead to the top of the mountain, as if this is going to save you. There is too much at stake. I put my money on Jesus because he has credibility. He paid the price. He proved himself. And Jesus made it clear that there will be a day for each of us of reckoning. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. Let me just read you in closing from the book of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. These are books of the misdeeds of every, a listing of the misdeeds of every human being in the world, including you and me. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown 
into the lake of fire. In other words, for anyone who did not have Jesus pay for him, he paid for himself. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You're thinking, oh, now you're trying to scare me. Yes, I am. (laughs) But I'm trying to scare you with the truth. Let me just put it simply. If Jesus is right, one day you will stand before God in judgment for your life. Jesus said, every idle word you speak, you'll give an account of on that day. You will be found guilty, by the way. I suspect you know that. And when that time comes for you, and it will come, any old God won't do. Only one thing will save you from the lake of fire. It will be the one who died on your behalf, Jesus Christ. And that's why he's the only way. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.